Good morning, church. I'm excited to have my wife's family here with us today. They're going to hate me so much for even bringing them up right now. But um, I want to take a second and encourage my father-in-law, Mike. He is the best people pastor I have ever met in my life. The way that he loves people is something only I can aspire to. If I have half of the love for you that he has for his people, that's an overwhelming amount of love. And I'd encourage you to go up to him after the service and thank him. He's been serving faithfully in ministry now for how many decades, Mike? Over three. He's been in pastoral ministry for a long time. And uh, he's a very faithful servant to the Lord. So thank you for how you've taught me how to pastor well, Mike. It's been a blessing to me and hopefully to you too. His ministry is an extension to you. Last week, we started the third discourse of the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we are, Matthew chapter 13. There are five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. We've already read the Sermon on the Mount, which was the first one, and we read the Missionary Discourse But we are in the middle of the parable discourse. Matthew chapter 13 is full of parables. But they all concern the same thing. They're all parables about the same thing. The kingdom of heaven. In each parable, you'll remember I used this analogy last week. Each parable gives us a different facet of the gem that is the kingdom of heaven. The first parable, which we read last week, the parable of the sower, was all about potential responses to the word of the kingdom. In the parable, there would be those who hear the word of the kingdom and they are divided into four potential groups. So there are those with a heart like a hardened path who fail to believe. Then there are those who receive the word but lack root in themselves and so they fall away quickly from the faith. And then there are those who also receive the word but it gets choked out gets choked out by the worries of life and by riches. And finally, there is the good soil, those who receive the word and bear fruit for the kingdom. And one of the biggest takeaways last week was that the the message of the kingdom of heaven would be divisive. We see that play out in our world pretty clearly. Jesus speaks in parables here to make this division obvious. For Jesus, parables, you'll remember, are short stories or word pictures even short sentences that don't carry their message on the surface. They carry it below the surface. The hearer must dig deeper to find the meaning. In fact, we could even say they need the spirit to get to the meaning. Jesus doesn't give the crowd on the shore an explanation of his parables. Remember, Jesus is speaking from a boat on the shoreline in Capernaum in Galilee. Instead, he turns to his disciples who are sitting in the boat with him, and he gives them the explanation for the parable of the sower. This week, we'll look at three more parables in this discourse, and they all have to do with subverting the expectations of what someone might assume the kingdom would be like. So let's stand and read Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43 together. Again, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24, reading through verse 43. 
This is the word of the Lord. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Please be seated. And let's pray and ask the Lord for wisdom to understand his word. Father, we pray for ears that hear. We pray for understanding now in Jesus' name. We need, we need your help. We pray that your word would mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, into his likeness. Lord, that you would tear away all distractions. Help us to uh, desire this more than riches. In Jesus' name, amen. Three parables are before us today. Three parables of the kingdom. Let's walk through each one and try to understand what Jesus' hearers would have heard. Remember, Jesus is seated in this boat, right? He's been speaking to the disciples, and now he turns back to the crowds, and he puts another parable before them. So, three parables of the kingdom. The first parable that Jesus puts forth before them is what we commonly call the parable of the weeds, and what the disciples will later call the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus begins... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So a farmer plants his crop using good seed. But an enemy, we don't know who this enemy is, we're not told any details about him, but an enemy has crept into his field at night while his men are sleeping and his enemy contaminates the field. Jesus says he sows the weeds among the wheat. And the word among 
here. The word among means more than just a mere dusting of weeds. Like he was passing by and he's like, oh, this will trick him and throw some weeds. He goes into the midst of the field and spreads these dangerous weeds all over this man's field. Most translations don't tell us what kind of weed this is that the enemy sows. An old word, tares, you might have in your Bible. The weeds, the weeds are tares. But the enemy has sown a weed called darnel, which looks exactly like wheat while it's growing. And it's not until it bears fruit, until the grain pops out, that you can kind of tell that it's a weed. It still looks almost exactly like wheat. If you Google images of wheat versus darnel, it's striking how similar they look. The problem with this weed is that if you eat the grains, they're really poisonous. So if the grain is harvested and the wheat is mixed with the darnel, the whole crop is ruined. Verse 26 tells us that uh, it isn't until the plants bear fruit that that the workers are able to tell that the whole field is contaminated. By that time, the roots of the plants are so intertwined that pulling up the weeds would have harmed the whole crop. Again, it would have ruined the whole thing. It's it's truly a worst-case scenario for a farmer. There were even Roman laws prohibiting this kind of revenge. It was a really evil thing to do, and even the Romans thought so. The servants of the landowner here in the story, or the master of the house, as he's he's called later, notice the darnel among the wheat, and they ask him uh, what he's up to. Like, why did you sow, didn't you sow good seed into your field? And immediately the master says, without hesitation, the enemy, an enemy has done this. The master knows right away that this is some type of agricultural sabotage. And the servants suggest that they go up and and pull the weeds right away, but the master knows it's too late. So they'll need to let them grow together. And then they have to do the painstaking work of sorting the wheat and the darnel at the harvest. He instructs them to carefully gather the darnel, the weeds, together and burn it so that it doesn't contaminate anything else. But the wheat they're supposed to gather in the barn. So this parable has the same setting as the last one, as the parable of the sower. Jesus is using familiar imagery for the crowd. Remember, he is on a boat speaking to a crowd in Capernaum, which is both a lake city and a farm city. So they would have understood how evil a thing it would have been to sow darnel in a wheat field. In the parable of the sower, all of the seeds are good, and the soil is the culprit. But here, only the seed the master sows is good, and the enemy sows bad seed, but the field accepts both. But Jesus doesn't give them an explanation of the parable, just like the parable of the sower. He just puts it before them. No explanation, and it'll only be given to the disciples later on. Instead of an explanation, Jesus gives them another parable from agricultural life. He put another parable before them saying, this is verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Again, we have a man who sows a seed. 
This time it's a mustard seed, a common plant for gardens at the time. There are no problems in this parable with the seed or with the soil. But what Jesus emphasizes here is that the mustard seed is really small. But this mustard seed grows to the height of a tree, and even birds come and make their homes in the branches. Two things worth noting here that you might be wondering about. First, you might be thinking, the mustard seed isn't really the smallest seed that we know about. Nor do mustard plants typically reach the size to be considered a tree. It's really just a bush. But mustard seeds are indeed very small, So small that they're often referred to in the scriptures proverbially. Jesus will use the mustard seed proverbially again in chapter 17, verse 20, when he talks about the faith, the size of a mustard seed. And that's how Jesus is using it here. So don't worry that it's not the smallest seed. That's not Jesus's point. Mustard bushes, on the other hand, can grow pretty large, especially a certain type of mustard plant in Palestine at the time. It wasn't heard of for a mustard bush to grow 10 or 15 feet high in Israel. And anything that big could house a bird's nest. But Jesus is also intentionally being hyperbolic to demonstrate a truth about the kingdom, which we'll talk about in a bit. So once again, Jesus gives no explanation for what he means that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And he doesn't even give it to his disciples later on. He believes that his disciples should be able to understand the parable without him holding their hands. And he also gives them no explanation for the next parable. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So for the first time, Jesus moves away from the field, from agricultural life, and brings us a parable of a woman inside making bread. A lot of bread. It's unclear in the ESV just how much bread, but three measures of flour would have been a reference to three large batches. So the NIV does a pretty good job of converting the weight for us when it tells us that it was more than 60 pounds For all those bakers out there, you might recognize the process that she's using. Like all bread before yeast was commercially available, she's making sourdough. The large batches are ready to start the fermentation process. So she takes a little bit of leftover dough from a previous batch, a bit that is already leavened with the yeast, and she mixes it with the rest of the flour and the water, and she starts the proofing process. A little bit of sourdough starter will work its way through the whole batch, all 60 pounds, causing the dough to rise and become really delicious. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But again, no explanation is given. Matthew then inserts a narrative note, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The statement is a lot like what we read in verses 10 through 17. Jesus speaks to the crowd in parables on purpose. 
And in verses 10 through 17, we learn that Jesus did so so that they would indeed hear but never understand and see but never perceive. Jesus is creating a division in the crowd between those who hear and those who don't, those in the boat and those on the shore. But Matthew tells us here that in verses 34 and 35 that Jesus is also fulfilling prophecy, prophecy spoken by Asaph, the author of Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 2, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Psalm 78 is all about remembering the teaching of the Lord and turning back to him. Asaph, the author of the psalm, says that he will teach in parables and reveal what is hidden so that people would repent and seek their God and turn back to him and desire his word. And so the same thing is true for Jesus here. He speaks in parables. He wants his hearers to do the work of understanding, turning back to him. So that's what we'll do next. Let's consider three kingdom truths. Each of these parables teaches us a truth about the kingdom. And these truths work beautifully together. Again, they are facets on the gem that is the kingdom of heaven. And through these truths, Jesus directly counters the expectations of the crowd for what they think the kingdom should be. Remember, they're expecting the Messiah to kick out the Romans and to reestablish the throne of David in the land of Israel as soon as possible. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That's what he tells Pilate in the Gospel of John. And so the kingdom of heaven subverts the crowd's expectations. So we're going to back up to verse 31 and walk through these three parables again. We'll start with the mustard seed and the leaven, and then we'll digest Jesus' explanation of the parable of the weeds to end our time. Three kingdom truths. First, the kingdom starts modest but flourishes. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Like this small mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven starts unassuming. Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. Now, at the time, Israel was not an important country to Rome. It was a backwater little country within the big Roman Empire, significant mostly for where it was situated in the Near East. It was along trade routes between Egypt and Persia and Asia Minor. Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, famously said, Can anything good come from Nazareth in reference to Jesus? But I wonder if the Romans thought the same thing about Israel. Can anything good come from Israel? It was an insignificant place that really gave the Roman Empire a headache more often than not. They would destroy it in 30 years' time. It was insignificant, but that's where Jesus was from. And on top of that, Jesus wasn't even from the most prominent part of this little backwater country in the Roman Empire. He was from Galilee, the boondocks of the backwater country. And he wasn't even from the biggest village in Galilee. Again, can anything good come from Nazareth? This teacher gathered around him a crowd of laborers and blue-collar workers and fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. 
the beginning of the kingdom of heaven was modest. But the mustard seed would bloom into the greatest force the world had ever seen. These disciples would disperse out into the known world and spread the message of the kingdom of heaven. And the great Roman Empire itself would adopt Christianity as its official state religion a couple hundred years later. Christianity today is the world's largest religion. It started unassuming and modest and small, but it bloomed into a world-altering kingdom. Praise God! But this idea of a kingdom slowly growing to previously unimagined heights was not what the people of Israel expected from their Messiah. Not at all. They expected a king who would bring the kingdom all at once, who would overthrow the powers that be through revolution, and who would establish a second mighty kingdom in the nation of Israel. In their minds, the kingdom wasn't supposed to start like a mustard seed. It was supposed to start in power, in revolution, and eventually in domination. But that wasn't the kingdom Jesus brought. He brought a kingdom that is like a tiny, itty-bitty mustard seed in the beginning, but that grows to the height of a tree. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 17. Here, Ezekiel is presenting his own parable, actually, that tells of God's judgment against Judah's king for turning away from the covenant. But at the end of this parable in Ezekiel 17, there's a note of hope in a Messiah. See if you can hear familiar imagery. This is Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost its youngest twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I bring high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. So the sprig from a cedar tree blooms and flourishes. Every kind of bird lives in its branches. It's a noble, big cedar tree. And now Jesus is appropriating this imagery from Ezekiel 17 and uses it instead of as a cedar, he applies it to a measly mustard bush. He's being ironic. Birds will come from all over and nest not in the cedar, but in the mustard bush. The noble cedar tree of God's promise. The mighty kingdom of Israel. The mighty kingdom of the Lord. Whose king sits on the throne of David. Will appear like a mustard bush. Instead of a cedar tree. And the birds that come and nest in the branches. Just like they are in Ezekiel. Here in Jesus' parable. Are symbolic of the nations of the world. The kingdom of heaven though modest in its beginnings, will grow so large that the nations of the world will be embraced in it. Praise the Lord. 
Next week, we're celebrating our 54th annual missions conference. This is our hope when we do that, isn't it? That the kingdom of heaven, though modest in its beginning, would spread to every corner of the globe? Praise God for that truth. Revelation 7 tells us that a great multitude will worship the Lamb from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Praise the Lord. The kingdom of heaven starts modest, but flourishes in the world. So perhaps we are tempted to think that this is less possible where we live. After all, Lakeland is a pretty Christian town. There's a lot of great churches preaching the word and preaching the gospel right now. We might look around and see that the kingdom has already bloomed here. But I wonder if our expectations of Christ's kingdom are too low. Do we expect to see the gospel bloom in the hearts of the people of Lakeland? Do we? I hope so. I hope that we expect that to actually happen here. Are there those in your life who are nominally Christian, but do not follow Christ with all of their heart? Do you expect the kingdom of heaven to flourish in their lives too? I expect that there is a lot more work to be done in our community through the work of discipleship and evangelism than what we previously expected. The kingdom starts modest, but flourishes. Second, the kingdom starts hidden, but spreads. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So the kingdom doesn't just spread outward. It doesn't just expand. The idea that Jesus is trying to help us understand here is a bit more nuanced than that. Like leaven in a lump of dough, the kingdom of heaven transforms its environment. Even, the, even though the kingdom starts hidden away, it spreads, changing the world and bringing people along as it goes. I confess, I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out the exact right word for this second point. I, I ended on spreads. I had the brain trust of Pastor Andrew and one other person who will remain nameless trying to help me figure out the right word to include in this point. The kingdom of heaven starts hidden, but, but what? It's not that the kingdom expands, although it does that. That's the point of the last parable and not the only thing that leaven does in dough. It is hidden, but the point of the parable isn't that the leaven is revealed per se. Transforms would be a great word to put there, but I didn't want you to think that the, the kingdom itself transforms. The kingdom does transforming work. That's the point. So the closest word that I got to explain the process with a clear word was infects. It starts hidden, but it infects. But that's gross. And it has a negative connotation, right? At first, I settled on the word proofs for all those bakers in the room. We understand that word because it's a baking term, and that's the process of what's happening here. The leaven proofs the dough. It causes the dough to rise, converting sugar in the flour to carbon dioxide and creating more yeast in the process. It cultivates, it converts, 
It transforms the dead flour into living sour bread dough. It's an amazing process. But of course, it was my wife who provided me with the best word to use. The leaven spreads through the dough, not in the sense of thinning out, but spreading as in effecting and changing along the way. The leaven transforms the dough as it spreads. That's exactly what the kingdom of heaven does. It works its way through a culture, transforming it from the inside, redeeming it. The kingdom of heaven started as an underground movement. It spread by word of mouth. It was hidden. It was an illegal religion. But eventually, this illegal religion spread through the entire Roman Empire, completely changing it from the inside. And of course, it hasn't stopped spreading. It has reached every corner of the globe, converting people of every nation and transforming every culture that it touches from something that is against God and his creation to something that reveals another aspect about God every time it reaches a new people. I'm reminded of the underground church in China. The church there has been persecuted for decades. The government has tried to stamp it out by force time and time again. But despite these efforts, the church has steadily grown. Really consistently, the number of Protestant Christians has steadily increased by 10% every year. And it's estimated that there will be more Christians in China than in the USA by 2030. And that it will be a majority Christian nation in 2050. That's crazy to think about. Now, there might be another round of heavy persecution in China that could prevent that. But but isn't that an amazing fact? Imagine what China would be like if it is completely transformed from the inside by the kingdom of heaven. It would be a modern-day Roman Empire. This is how the church has always been. And it completely subverts expectations. Instead of dominating and forcing conversions and worship, it impacts the hearts of individual people and transforms us from the inside out. And because it transforms us from the inside out, it transforms the world that we inhabit from the inside out. Our families and our culture, our friend groups. Spiritual renewal is a grassroots movement. The world that we live in is hopeless. And hopelessness reigns in the kingdom of darkness. But Jesus Christ brings hope in his death and his resurrection. And the kingdom of heaven transforms the kingdom of darkness with its light through Jesus Christ. And it does so through the hearts of individual people who place their faith in him. Praise God. The gospel and the hope found there is infectious. People want hope. And we have it in abundance. Amen? Do you have hope in Jesus Christ today enough to share? Like leaven that spreads throughout the dough, may we be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ carrying the message of the gospel to the lost. Amen? The kingdom of heaven starts modest but flourishes. It starts hidden, but it spreads. And third, it starts contested, 
but triumphs. Remember, Jesus didn't give the explanation of the parable of the weeds to the crowd. Instead, we read, then he left the crowds, this is verse 36, and went into the house, and his disciples came to him. At the beginning of chapter 13, we read that Jesus left the house that he was in, the one the crowds had gathered around, and the one that his family was trying to get into, and he got into a boat on the coast of the Sea of Galilee to teach the crowds. But now... He leaves the boat, and he returns to the house. This time, it seems like it's only his close disciples who are with him. And they ask him for an explanation, an explanation of the parable of the weeds. Apparently, they understood the two parables that we've covered thus far, but the parable of the weeds is still unclear for them. So Jesus starts his explanation with a glossary of terms. He wants them to understand that certain figures in the parable stand for certain things. So he starts off with the sower, who is also referred to as the master of the house in the parable. He says, this is the son of man. Of course, by this time in the Gospel of Matthew, we should all know that the title son of man has been Jesus' preferred way of referring to himself. Jesus is the one who sows the good seed. He says, That the field is the world. Notice that. The field is the world, which we really need to understand in order to move forward. Often this parable is interpreted as an explanation of why there are Christians and non-Christians in the church. But the field is not the church. The field is the world. Notice that, the whole world. The Greek word translated as world here means all of the created universe and especially all of human society. So the parable is not about the church. It's primarily about the whole world, even if we can find application points for the church. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Jesus then is pictured as planting in the world those who participate in the kingdom of heaven. They are the good seed, and eventually they are the wheat that blooms. The weeds, on the other hand, are are the sons of the evil one. By calling these two groups sons, sons of, Jesus means that they belong. They belong either to the kingdom or to the evil one. The enemy who sowed the bad seed is the devil, the doomed enemy of God who works against the kingdom. The devil here is pictured as a spoiler, which I think is a great understanding of our enemy. The devil is a spoiler, someone trying to bring the good down along with the bad. He is evil and he seeks to destroy what is good. That is good insight into who the devil is. Thank you, Jesus, for telling us this. He doesn't just present you with temptations outside of your world. He's trying to spoil what's good in your life. That's his work. But Jesus goes on. The harvest is the end of the age, he says. The end of the age was just another way of saying the end times. The expected date when God would transform the whole world and bring justice. The workers of the field, Jesus says, are or the reapers, the harvesters, they are angels. The angels do the work of carrying out God's decree. They don't do anything of their own accord. They only do the will of God. That's what angels do. 
Only do the will of God. So verses 37 through 39 help us understand what is what in the parable. Verses 40 through 43 then explain the parable. And this explanation contains, listen very carefully, this explanation contains the only sure things that Jesus wants his disciples to understand from the parable of the weeds. Everything else is speculation. So that's, that's an important point. Jesus says in verse 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It turns out that the whole point of the parable is what happens at the very end of it. The workers are ordered to gather up and burn the weeds. So Jesus, the Son of Man, is pictured here as judge of humanity who will send his angels to take the weeds out of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, but we get even more information from Jesus here about them. The weeds are all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. The book of 1 John tells us in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So these lawless individuals, all those who are dead in their sins and who act contrary to the law of God, are bound together, gathered up, and thrown into the fiery furnace. So this description of non-Christians is striking. They are sons of the evil one and lawbreakers, workers of lawlessness. But notice that the angels also gather up all causes of sin in the kingdom. All of the stumbling blocks and temptations in the world are burned up. All of the causes of lawlessness are burned with all those who have dedicated their lives to lawlessness. The fiery furnace does not sound like a pleasant place. It is an intentional reference to the book of Daniel. You remember the famous story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are ordered to worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar, but they refuse. So they are thrown into the fiery furnace, but they were miraculously saved. Here, There doesn't seem to be anything to save the sons of the evil one from the fiery furnace. It is just a place of judgment. Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the second time we've heard this phrase. First time was back in chapter 8. It's Jesus' preferred way of speaking about hell. Jesus' chosen description of hell tells of a place where one weeps and grinds down their teeth. We can understand those emotions. Deep sadness and overwhelming anxiety. In short, hell is a place where peace is not found. And this is the destiny of the sons of the evil one, the weeds who practice lawlessness. But verse 43 tells us of the destiny of the sons of the kingdom of heaven. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
The sons of the kingdom are described here as righteous, as opposed to the lawbreakers. They will enter the kingdom of their father. So Jesus encourages his disciples here once again to think of God as their father, just like he did in the Lord's Prayer. The sons of the kingdom, after all, have joined a new family. We learned about that at the end of chapter 12. Jesus uses another phrase from the book of Daniel to describe the fate of the righteous. They will shine like the sun. Listen to Daniel 12, verse 3. It says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If the only words to describe hell are words that invoke deep despair and anxiety, then the words of the kingdom here invoke hopefulness and happiness. The sons of the kingdom shine like the sun in the presence of their father. They mirror their Lord's glory. They gleam in their righteousness. Once again, we find in the words of Christ a distinction between two groups. The sons of the evil one who are burned up in a fiery furnace and the sons of the kingdom who shine like the sun. The kingdom of heaven exists on earth, still in its fallen state. And the sons of the kingdom belong to it, but the sons of the evil one are allowed to grow with the church at the same time. And it isn't until the end of the age that final justice will be handed out. It's even possible that the weeds and the wheat will be difficult to distinguish. Many pastors over the years have taken this parable again to be a direct reference to unbelievers in the church. And again, I think that's one application of this text, but not the main one. We should not be surprised, though, to find out that many in the end who claimed to belong to the kingdom were in fact sons of the evil one. There are many who play the part well. And we can do our best to ensure that our churches have only believers in our membership. In fact, we should do that. And we must teach sound doctrine and require submission to the word of God and have godly statements of faith. But this parable teaches us that it is the Lord who does the sorting in the end. Sometimes the roots are too tangled together to get rid of the weeds in this life. That work is entrusted to the Lord. After all, the wheat growing in the field doesn't know if the plant growing besides it is a weed This is where the parable of the leaven helps us. Again, many facets to the kingdom of heaven. We trust that the kingdom is a transforming force in the world. Amen? And we never cease from the work of evangelism and discipleship. Jesus ends his explanation with the words that are so important for us. Last week, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. He's encouraging his disciples. He's encouraging us to seek understanding in these parables and to dig deeper. Likewise, he is telling us to seek wisdom. Seek wisdom from the Lord for understanding. When we read God's word, we must rely upon the spirit to give us insight and the ability to apply it to our lives. The kingdom of heaven comes to us in unexpected ways. We would expect a king to stamp out his competition to wage brutal war on the enemy until the world is dominated and no rebels remain. The disciples don't let go of that belief until right before Christ ascended into heaven. 
Do you remember what they asked Jesus on top of the hill in Acts chapter 1? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It says after Jesus has died on the cross and rose. And he responds, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom grows through the evangelistic movements of the church and in the power of the Spirit. It doesn't move by force or coercion. God is patient. And these parables call us to patience. The kingdom won't always work itself out in the ways that we expect it to. It starts contested by the weeds, but it will triumph in the end of the age. And it is indeed triumphing now as it spreads on all the earth and grows in every corner. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to participate in the kingdom of heaven. That we wouldn't just sit by the sidelines thinking that the work in our area is done. We know that you have a lot more to do. We pray that you would help us and encourage us. Give us the courage to speak to those that come to our mind when we think of those who need your gospel. We ask now that you would impress upon our hearts your goodness and your patience for us, even as you have patience for the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.